You can have your Bibles handy this morning. Uh, last time we were together, we considered the man Nimrod. For those of you that were with us last week, most of what we know about Nimrod, we do not know from the Bible, but from tradition. He's mentioned in Genesis. He's mentioned in a genealogy in Chronicles. He's mentioned once, I believe, uh, in Amos in passing, speaking of the land uh, that, that was the land of Nimrod. But most of what we know from Nimrod uh, for, was, is from tradition. And I mentioned last week that that's a dangerous place if we're going to build doctrines upon what we learn. But last week we didn't build any any doctrines upon the legacy of Nimrod. Instead, we used his name and the traditions that undergirded his name, whether or not he was who tradition says he was or not, to connect to those traditions themselves and to recognize the nature of a particular belief system, which is called historically the mother-child cult, a false system that uh, has, has dominated various aspects of religious sensibilities from generation to generation, intended by Satan to be a divine forgery or a forgery of the divine promise, excuse me, of the virgin birth and of the messianic promise. And so we walked through those things, and I told you that this week we were going to be doing a similar thing with Babylon. We step into a topic this week which is significantly more biblically grounded than Nimrod. Nimrod doesn't come up much. Babylon comes up quite a bit. And we would expect then in turn that the doctrine surrounding the legacy of Babylon will be more apparent and also more important. The city in the plains of Shinar that was known as Babel in Genesis chapter 11, as we studied it a couple of weeks ago, did not go away when the languages were confounded and the nations were scattered throughout the earth. In fact, all throughout the Old Testament, whenever you come across the word Babylon in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word underneath it is not actually the word Babylon, it's the word Babel. The Hebrew word is Babel. Now, the name Babylon is actually Greek in origin. It's a Greek transliteration of the cuneiform name Babili, translation of the Semitic word, the gate of God, which was probably the name that most of the Semitic cultures in the area actually called the city, Babili. That was likely how the region addressed the city itself. Outside of Genesis chapter 10 and 11, however, the King James translators transitioned from calling the city Babel, and the word Babel there is an Hebrew word, so instead of it being the cuneiform word, the, the Hebrew word was Babel, which is a word that literally means confusion. It went from using the word Babel to name the city to, the, uh, um, to in the translations, Babylon. And the next time we see this city come up is in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 24, and there it is called Babylon, even though the, the, the name behind it, the word behind it in the Hebrew is in fact just Babel. And we would ask the question of why. why. Why did the King James translators choose to call the city Babylon when the word un, that undergirds it, the word underneath it, is the Hebrew word for Babel, confusion, and the city that's there in Genesis 10 and 11. And, and there were reasons for this. The, the transition to Babylon helps us in a couple of ways. First, as I just mentioned, we're able, because the name transitions to Babylon, to seamlessly relate the events to both history and geography. But second, the King James translators most likely switched to the name Babylon because it connects it more seamlessly with the New Testament. In the New Testament, of course, being written in Greek, the Greek name for the city was Babylon. And so in the Greek New Testament, you would find Babylon, it would be translated Babylon, and in order to bring a consistency of translation across Old Testament and New Testament, the translators very likely changed it in the Old Testament from Babel to Babylon to let us know that we're talking about the same city. Now, they wouldn't have done that in Genesis 10 and 11, because the name Babel is essential to that text. That word means confusion. But then as we get beyond just that immediate text, now we're switching to the geographic and the historical name for the city, as assigned by the Greeks at least, in order that we can understand and relate ourselves properly. However, that, that distinction, that switch in 2 Kings chapter 17 does do the one disservice in our minds, which is that we aren't as, it's not as natural to us to connect the Babylon that we read about in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, 
the Babylon that was eventually overthrown in 539 BC by Cyrus the Great, and the Babylon of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ to Babel in Genesis 10 and 11. However, we ought to connect them because it is, in fact, the same city. Throughout the book of Genesis, we've spoken of reasons why God added certain accounts. When we know that there are so many things that happened in history that God saw fit not to tell us. And that can be frustrating, especially in Genesis 1 through 11. We've walked through all of the various uh, accounts questioning, well, what's happening here? What's happening there? We don't have enough information. God didn't see fit to give it to us. And yet he did see fit to give us certain accounts. That's what we used last week. We said Nimrod's in the Bible for a reason, and we started to try to think through why it might be that Nimrod was there. And, and, and of course, that, that was the product of, uh, that, that produced the sermon that I preached last week. And with Babel, we know that there's one clear reason why God saw fit to, to add this account of the rebellion of Babel and the confusion of languages, namely to explain why it is there are so many languages in the world today. But there is so much more to Babel than just the confusion of languages. And that's what I would like us to see today. In our message on Genesis 11, we spoke of Babel, specifically the Tower of Babel, as a physical metaphor for man's desire to unite against the true and living God. And that through the confounding of the languages, mankind has been unable for these thousands of years since Babel to realize that desire to unite against God because of the natural antipathy that has been created between cultures and languages, making men tribal and so desiring naturally not to work together. But we also mentioned last week and and then particularly two weeks ago in that message in Genesis 11 that in the modern era, this is changing. That mankind is renewing its sensibility for unity as technology bridges the gaps between languages and cultures. And not only working through the language gap, but also imposing, first through radio, then through television, then through internet, then the internet in our pockets through the smartphone, a what I would call a monoculture where vastly different cultures are now receiving the same information and are reacting in very similar ways. And we saw this no more clearly than in the COVID emergency of the last couple of years, where the lies that were spread by governments and unelected national bodies spread to the farthest corners of the world, something that 100 years ago never would have happened. It would have taken so long for there to be some sort of multinational governing body that could have told everybody what to do, and yet it was instantaneous a couple of years ago, which meant there was a significantly more coordinated worldwide response, whereas in in, in times past, various cultures, cultures that were perhaps a little more hasty would have been a little more hasty, cultures that were a little less hasty would have been a little less hasty, cultures that didn't trust international bodies would would not have listened when, when things came down the pike, there would have been so much time between communications that by the time those communications would have been there, they would not have had much credibility anymore, and yet instead what we see is all of these cultures, all of these various distinct cultures acted in very similar ways, responded in general unison in these events. And that, that, that's different. That's new. That's unique. And this kind of singularity of culture and of communication, which we are seeing, is not unanticipated in Scripture. As I said a couple of weeks ago, today it's called globalism. That's not a word we find in our Bibles, but the theme most certainly is found in our Bibles. And the theme of globalism in our Bibles is Babylon. That's what Babylon is in our Bibles. Now, Babylon was a city. And it's possible that we'll actually see it become a city again. If you've listened to my series on the revelation of Jesus Christ, I do speculate that it's very, very possible that Babylon actually as a city could in fact be rebuilt. But Babylon isn't just a city. Babylon is a philosophy. Babylon is an ideology in the scriptures. It is a theme in the scriptures. It holds a legacy in and of itself. Babylon is a vision, and it's the vision of a singular, united, and wholly undivided world, homogeny of language and of culture, not as an end unto itself, however, 
but rather to the end that mankind might cast off God's promises of, a, of, of his coming utopia and all of the accountability that comes with it, that utopia that we call the millennial kingdom, founded upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ and given to all those to whom, uh, all those who submit to God's authority. And instead, Babylon is a human utopia, apart from God, where man is the God of his own existence, where we are the gods of our own fate. That's what Genesis 11 was talking about. That's why God confounded the languages, because what Babylon represented was not just humans working together. God's fine with humans working together. It was that when we all came together, we came together in order to pursue the imaginations of our own hearts. And the imagination of man's heart is only evil continually. So politically today, that's called globalism. Ideologically, it's called humanism. Biblically, it's the legacy of Babylon. Now, a quick review of the things that we said last week when we were talking about Nimrod. Babel became the center of a false worship system where man sought to exalt himself above the name of God. In Babel, the system began, it would seem, with the worship of Nimrod. Again, this is what tradition taught us. We, we, we talked talk through that last week. Uh, whether or not tradition is accurate on this, the legacy of Babylon is there in the scriptures for all to read. Tradition states that Nimrod met with a violent death at the hands of other powerful people in the kingdom, at which point his wife, Semiramis, took power. She did this by attributing to her husband the attributes of Messiah, the promises of Genesis 15, 3.15, excuse me, come to life. That Nimrod was the one who crushed the head of the serpent. And he was resurrected as God had promised in the form of her son, a boy named Tammuz. Thus Semiramis becomes the holy mother of the resurrected Messiah and she is given God status next to her son. That's the mother-child cult as we talked about it last week. And that spiritual apostasy would form the basis of any number of religious systems, even religious systems that are still working to this day. But the essence of the tradition there was a merging of political power, economic power, and religious power into a church-state system that saw the king as God, the state as God, and the people themselves as God by denying the true and living God himself. And this system would use the power of the state, the necessity of the economy, and the zeal of religious fear and devotion to manipulate the masses and exalt a man, by extension Satan himself, above God. And that's Babel. But what is most fascinating about this, as I've alluded to already, is that as we fast forward in our Bibles from the first book of the Bible, Genesis, to the last book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ... Babylon is still around and still standing in rebellion against God. And these are the dots that I'd like to connect this morning, intellectually and philosophically. We're going to get into some more contemporarily relevant things, but then I'm going to bring it back to the Word of God at the end, and we're going to understand what we do with Babylon. So stick with me. Um, it, there's going to be a lot to talk about this this morning. The first time we see Babylon in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ is in chapter 14, verse 8. The Bible says, And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Babylon is described here as a woman who caused great nations to commit fornication, and a great city. A word, that, that word fornication there, as it speaks of in the text. It's a word that we often use to speak of uh, illicit sexual acts expressed outside the nature of God's design, but which actually more broadly speaks of any act that is outside of the nature of God's design. Here we might understand that to be economically or spiritually, as there is an economic facet to Babylon in the revelation of Jesus Christ, as well as a spiritual facet to Babylon in that epistle. And in Genesis 11... The fornication was that the man and the city was using the ambition and the creativity that they had to rival God. So in Genesis chapter 11, we see a fornication in Babylon, which is that they were seeking to rival God. It was a false worship system that was to rival God's worship system. Thus, it is spiritual fornication. And in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, we see the same thing still happening, where, as we find... God will finally judge not just the city of Babylon, 
which at this point, our point in history doesn't exist. Babylon is ruins outside of Baghdad, although they've talked about rebuilding it, and, and it's possible it could be. But more specifically, the spirit of Babylon, which has never gone away. It exists today as it has since the days of Babel and will exist until God utterly destroys it. And that's what I want us to see today. Very similar to what we did last week with Nimrod, where we saw that that mother-child cult that existed in that day, that began in that day, continued on through the generations, and we see it in manifestations today from from Wicca and witchcraft to the eco-fascist movement, even to the Catholic Church. We are going to do the same thing as it relates to the nature of Babylon, only we, we can trace quite a bit more in the Bibles in relation to it. And we'll read about that in Revelation 18. So Babylon is this city. It is this spirit. It is this ideology with which the nations of the earth have been compelled to commit fornication. And we learn more about this in Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. The Bible says this. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. So Babylon is pictured as a woman. We saw that in Revelation 14 as well. And she is sitting upon a scarlet-colored beast. This beast is full of blasphemies. It has seven heads and ten horns. Now, we uh, spoke of this a little bit, uh, a little while ago in Genesis, as I connected you just just for for, for a brief time to Daniel chapter 7, as we were talking through the nature of some of those end times things. And in Daniel chapter 7, as well as in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, uh, in Revelation 13, verse 1, we see a beast rise out of the water, out of the sea, with seven heads and ten horns. We, We connected this to what we saw, In Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel sees a beast with 10 horns and a notable 11th horn, who the Bible calls the one who is the man of sin, the son of perdition. We often call him Antichrist. The Bible says that this beast was empowered by the dragon, and the dragon is identified in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ as Satan himself. You say, Pastor, you're saying a lot of things and you're not substantiating them. I know. Um, If you want all the substantiation for this, I can either preach until 6 tonight, or you can go listen to my series in Revelation that's on YouTube, it's on Sermon Audio. I go through it very, very slowly there. If you were there for that Genesis sermon, I did talk a little bit more about this. I showed you some things. So I'm I'm, I'm relying on what I've taught a little bit earlier in this series a bit as well. But, um, and we are making some interpretive decisions there. Revelation is notoriously interpreted in a thousand different ways, but this is how how we interpret the text. So this woman rides this beast, and the woman is arrayed in purple and scarlet, decked with gold and precious stones, meaning that whatever this mystery Babylon is that that, that, uh, has caused the nations to drink of the, the, the wrath of her fornication, she is excessively wealthy. She has a golden cup in her hand, and the Bible says that that cup is filled with the abominations and filthiness of her fornication. So it is her fornication, her filthiness, and her abominations that have brought about um, the, the, that, that is what she is effectively consuming with her wealth, with her lavishness, and with her riches. Verse 5 identifies her as mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. So this woman is identified as Babylon the Great. And we see this legacy that began in Genesis chapter 10 and 11 with Babel that goes throughout the Old Testament until it's destroyed in 539 B.C. continue into the New Testament. And the fact that the city does not exist today helps us understand that we're not just talking about a city. We are talking about an idea, a philosophy. Now, we know that this woman isn't a woman per se here we, we see it called a city, and a city which isn't just a city, but a representation of spiritual perversion. 
a false worship system. Perhaps it's rooted in the mother-child cult, as we see her called here the mother of harlots. We talked about that last week. Perhaps not. Perhaps rooted in some other um, cultish ideas. Certainly there will be a spiritual element to it. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But it will represent this defiant, humanistic desire to cast off God and challenge his authority as evidenced through the Tower of Babel. The legacy of the Tower of Babel continues on into Revelation. And so we know what what Babylon in Revelation is about because we know what the Tower of Babel was about. And this has led the church historically to see the Babylon of Revelation 17 as a renewed Babel, a world system of commerce and of ideology. We would call it a blasphemous false religion, a system itself, the system when it, when it arises, it will not call itself most likely a blasphemous ideology. It will, not, it, will, it will probably give some measure of lip service to God, at least until Antichrist destroys it. But a system which will seek to challenge the authority of God over the world and compel the nations of the earth to cast off the knowledge of the true and living God and instead dedicate themselves to her and to those who she puts in power. A future where man is God a God of our own existence. And so compelling the world, the nations of the world, the economies of the world, to fornicate, spiritually fornicate, against their creator with her. Now, as Revelation 17 continues, John does explain his vision. The beast with the seven heads and ten horns represents a kingdom of which five of the kings had already passed off the scene and there were two kings left within this great Kingdom, In my Revelation series, I, I use that along with many other evidences to point to some sort of revived Roman Empire, which in my interpretation is actually um, just the Western world because the Roman Empire never went away. We live in the, Roman, the legacy of the Roman world. The, the, the Babylonian world completely ceased to exist when Persia came into being. The Persian world ceased to exist when Greece overtook it. The Greek world, of course, each one assimilated various things, but ceased to exist when Rome overtook it. But there has been no culture that has overtaken Roman culture. We live in the legacy of the Western world. We live under the ideals of the Western philosophers that were rooted in first Greece and then into Rome. And so I believe that we're talking about the Western world here, and and all of these things are to identify it as such. The final iteration of this kingdom, however, would be, as we discussed a while ago from Daniel 7, a ten-king confederacy. We know that the Antichrist will pluck up three of those ten kings, according to Daniel 7. And eventually, Revelation 17 tells us that this beast, with the seven heads and the ten horns, will in fact kill the woman that is riding on top of her. This woman is that mother of harlots, Mystery Babylon. So this beast is going to use the mother of harlots to bring itself into power. It is going to ride on the the sensibilities and ideologies of this false worship system in order to gain the influence and the stature and the power that it needs over the world. And then it will turn on said system and it will destroy it and claim all the power for itself. And we would expect that to be kind of centralized in a singular man that we call Antichrist. Now, there's actually quite a bit more that we could say about that. Again, I encourage you to go to YouTube or Summer Audio or the the archive pages on the website if you want to dig into that more. I think I preached three or four messages on this whole topic um, when I was there in Revelation, and so we're certainly not going to cover it all today. What I want to do with the remainder of our time today, and there is some overlap between what I'm going to say today and what I said back in that Revelation series, um, I want to show you that the idea of Babylon is alive and well and help us orient ourselves not to the identity of what Babylon looks like in Revelation. Uh, All of that is very speculative and it's not really worth our time. But for us to see the spirit of Babylon in our age and then to understand what to do with what we can identify as the spirit of Babylon in our age. I mentioned in my Genesis 11 message that the banner under which all of, the, all, of, all of these things flies today as it relates to the, the goal of Babylon is globalism. Ideologically, it's called humanism. But culturally, we have many, many labels for it. We find the, the, the big catchword of the day for Babylon as diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
among dozens of other movements and buzzwords, including eugenics and abortion under the label of sustainable development, including critical race theory and the LGBTQ movement and the Green Movement and Black Lives Matter. While each one has its own stated goals, they all direct their adherence to the same tenets, which are to reject God's design, to reject his design in marriage, in family, in biological sex, in private property, in the value of human life, in shared human dignity, and the like. All of which finds its roots in the spirit of Babel where men decided to unite under a singular banner for the purpose of casting off God's authority and claiming it for themselves. And so let's consider some of the manifestations of Babel that we've seen, particularly, we'd say, in the last hundred years. The stated purpose of the United Nations is Babel. A part of the UN art collection is this very, very famous statue of a man beating his sword into a plowshare. This is intended to be a reflection of the promise of God in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and Micah chapter 4, verse 3, that in the days of the reign of Messiah upon earth, there would be peace. That peace would be brought in through Christ bringing righteousness, and all who align with him would be recipients of that righteousness, and because of Christ ruling and reigning in righteousness, there will be no war, therefore there will be no need for weapons of war, so we will all beat our swords into plowshares. It's a symbolic representation of absolute peace. Now, for the believer, our hope of that day is when Jesus comes. Because we recognize that man cannot find peace as long as his heart is filled with sin. And God must first eradicate sin before we can eradicate war. But that's not what Babylon believes. Babylon believes humanity can bring about this utopia. In fact... Marxism, communism, is a political outworking of this belief that man can, in fact, bring about peace apart from God. It's a political and ideological claim based in atheism that man is inherently good, not inherently sinful, and so under the proper conditions, mankind can graduate past all of the social ills in society into a transcendent state of human paradise. Another UN statue, which resides in front of UN buildings, a large cat with eagle's wings. Recall when we studied Daniel, those four beasts in Daniel 7, and the first of those beasts was a lion with eagle's wings. And that lion, his wings were plucked, and he was given the heart of a man and whatnot. Do you recall which nation, which empire the lion with eagle's wings stood for? It's the kingdom of Babylon. And if you recall, the kingdom, that, that, the, the representation of Babylon is very similar to this type of artwork. Attached to the UN is a council called the Unity and Diversity World Council. This began in 1964. The stated purpose was this. I quote from them, Unity and Diversity Council is a worldwide coordinating body looking toward a time in which there will be a one single organized energy of networking throughout the planet. Man saying this said, I am very interested in a harmony of all religions, not just to give birth to a new religion, but rather to produce, let's call it, a universal religious outlook through which there can be a new connecting of all cultures, all religions, all races. In this growing consciousness of sharing godliness and looking for a leader to lead everyone into this new heaven, the UN plans a very important role, plays a very important role, excuse me, in as much as it is a support system for any group that meets to support these matters. So we say, aha, the UN, that's the great culprit. No, the UN is not the great culprit. The UN is not Babylon. The UN bears the spirit of Babylon. You're going to be, you're going to run across people all over the place, YouTube and whatever else. This is, this is the end times. This is the vehicle for Antichrist. This is Babylon. This we don't know what Babylon's going to look like. We don't know who Antichrist is going to be. But we know this. We know the institutions that bear the spirit of Babylon that are operating in our world today. The UN is one of them. Not just the UN, also the EU. European Union. Strasbourg, France. That's the seat of the European Union. They have a parliament building. It bears a very postmodern design. It appears unfinished. 
It's said to symbolize, symbolize the unfinished nature of building Europe itself, but bears a striking resemblance to one of the most well-known paintings of the Tower of Babel, painted in 1563 by Pieter Bruegel. Very interesting. Say, Pastor, this isn't proving anything. I'm not trying to prove anything. I'm showing you symbols that are reflecting a spirit. Across that body of water, there are four UN buildings. One of those UN building, or EU buildings, excuse me. One of those EU buildings is called the Winston Churchill Building. In front of that Winston Churchill Building, there is a statue. The statue in front of that Winston Churchill Building is a statue of a woman riding a beast. And we say, aha, there it is, right? It's hiding in plain sight. The EU must be Babylon. That's the great whore that rides the beast, right? Well, no, it's not just the EU, but the EU bears that spirit, does it not? These are globalistic enterprises seeking to do what Babylon's seeking to do. We are not here to cast great conspiracy theories about what the UN is doing or what the EU is doing or we'll see uh, 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 other, other institutions here in just a moment. That's not the point of this. My point is not to have us fall into great um, depths of, of, of conspiracy theories and of paranoia. I hope that that's not what this will grow in you. But what I do hope it will grow in you is the fact that what we see among those who are leaders in this world is we see a growing momentum unto the unification that is, in fact, the spirit of Babylon. And we find that it's not just government bodies. In the past few years, history has confirmed that there is such a thing as science, you know, that method of hypothesis and testing repeating to affirm the way things work in this world. And then there is the science. And the science is an ideology. It is not a method. It's an ideology. And the science is not new. Even in places where real science is getting accomplished, the science has always been around. In Geneva, Switzerland, there's a science facility called CERN. It's a research facility founded in, by 12 countries in Europe where there is the Large Hadron Collider. It's the largest particle accelerator in the world. Wonderful things can be done as we smash particles together at extremely rapid rates and we can learn things from it. And that's all well and good. I'm, I, I'm not, not, not a big fan of the conspiracy theories. I don't know that they're trying to open a black hole or anything of the sort. But I will say this. All of that is neither here nor there to me. I don't really care. But this is the statue that sits in front of CERN. I introduce you to the Hindu god Shiva, nicknamed the Destroyer. This is a false god in Hindu religion, and the duty of this particular false god is the destroying of worlds at the end of creation and dissolving them into nothingness. But they don't see Shiva as a negative. They see Shiva as a positive because the point of destroying these worlds and dissolving them into nothingness is so that they can be Rebuilt better. Through destruction, Shiva facilitates a smooth transition from one stage of life to another. Now, that's it. CERN is Babylon. What they're doing there is terrible. Well, no, 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 not necessarily. We don't know what they're doing there, There's, other than that they're smashing particles together. But I can tell you this it bears a spirit, and that spirit is the spirit of Babel, of Babylon. And again, my point in all of this is not to make you paranoid. But when Paul said that the mystery of iniquity already works, we need to understand that it is still working. It has never gone away. Pagan religious devotion has always walked the halls of power within this world. Let's bring it closer to home. On June 26, 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court effectively legalized sodomite marriage by judicial fiat with their ruling on Obergfeld versus Hodges. Using the same rationale called substantive due process that was actually recently struck down in the Roe versus Wade decision. On that date, the White House was lit up in the rainbow, indicating a new forcefulness to a movement that we now call the LGBTQ plus movement. This has effectively become the undeclared federal religion. They fly their flag at our embassies. They uh, make homages to this false religious system in nearly every speech, in nearly every effort, in nearly every legislation. This is the spirit of Babylon. 
In August of 2019, the New York Times endorsed a long-form journalistic endeavor called the 1619 Project. Built upon the theories of a revisionist, revisionist historian named Howard Zinn, it argues that Western civilization has led to nothing but oppression and evil in the world. And so the tenets of the system built upon the principles of God's word as the Western civilization had been built up over the past centuries are to be utterly rejected and discarded for a greater, more equitable system built upon the tenets of atheism and cultural and political Marxism. That's Babylon. In 2020, the world was utterly shaken by the events surrounding the death of George Floyd. Out of this came a movement called Black Lives Matter, which has consumed the halls of power and commerce and religion in our country and around the Western world. From their original website, which of course was changed as soon as people noticed it, we read these goals for this organization called Black Lives Matter. First, a constitutional right at a state and federal level to a fully funded education, which includes a clear articulation of the right to a free education for all, special protections for queer and trans students. Wraparound services, social workers, free health services, including reproductive body autonomy, that's abortion. A curriculum that acknowledges and addresses students' material and cultural needs, physical activities and recreation, high-quality foods, free daycare, freedom from unwarranted search, seizure, and arrest. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. Notice fathers aren't mentioned there. As oppressed peoples living in the United States, the belly of global empire, we are in a critical position to build the necessary connections for a global liberation movement until we are able to overturn U.S. imperialism, capitalism, and white supremacy. Our brothers and sisters around the world will continue to live in chains. That's Babylon. The commonality that we find in all of these movements is an utter rejection of biblical design. God made them male and female. God instituted marriage and family as the fundamental building block of society with men as the head of that home. God says taking a human life is murder. God says if a man does not work, he should not eat. God has ordained civil governments among men to mete out justice for criminality. And the things that stand in dramatic opposition to the design of God... That, that spirit of standing in dramatic opposition to the design of God is a spirit that we can trace back to something and that something is Genesis 11 and Babel. It's why God confounded the languages to begin with. The legacy of Babylon. So then what do we make of the legacy of Babylon? The legacy of Babylon lets us state a few things. First, it's always been the same. It's a spirit of rebellion rooted in the unification of humanity with the purpose of casting off divine design and accountability and being the gods of our own existence. It began immediately after the flood with this determination to remain together and not be scattered and rather to build themselves a name and a tower that re reached unto the heavens to challenge the name of God himself. The legacy of Babel, as we see it in Revelation, is religious apostasy coupled, coupled with political power and economic influence. And this spirit has been in work in the world, at work in the world, since Babel. It's still here today. It is not every last vestige of any of these organizations that we stand against. We don't stand against them on principle because of our capitalistic roots or because of our economic perspectives or whatever it might be. The reason why each of these institutions has historically been uh, something that the church has looked at and Orthodox Christianity has been concerned with is not because um, they, they talk about wanting to help people or because uh, we want to see people impoverished or we don't want the world to work forward into, into a future where everyone is educated. Those are not the problems we have with it. The problems we have with it is the spirit of Babylon that undergirds their goals. So Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, that the mystery of iniquity doth already work. The mystery of iniquity that will lead to the great man of sin, it's already at work in this world, and we can see that. 
And John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, that not only will Antichrist come one day, but that currently there are many Antichrists, those who are standing in opposition to the teachings of Christ, to the person and work of Christ. The spirit, which will come to its climax in the days of that great man of sin, that great son of perdition, are already working today. We can understand that in every age, the legacy of Babylon exists. And in certain times, like the one that we've been in since about 2008, the legacy of Babylon takes a harder push at the door upon kings and upon merchants and upon religious systems of this world to join her in her spiritual fornication against God Most High. And the commandment of God is really where I want us to go with this today as it relates to Babylon himself. In Revelation chapter 18, verse 4, as God is contemplating and John is looking at mystery Babylon, God gives a command. A voice from heaven gives a command. And we read that command in Revelation verses 18, uh, chapter 18, verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. The call for the church in every age is to identify the legacy of Babylon and to come out of her, to be not a partaker with her. And notice the reason, notice the warning that ye receive not of her plagues. Now, the final generation, in that final generation, the destruction of those who are connected to Babylon will be complete. But by extension, the connection of people to the legacy of Babylon in our own age comes with its warning as well. And that doesn't just mean you're connected to, I gave examples today. I gave examples of where we can see the obvious hallmarks of Babylon in the halls of power. But Babylon can work all the way down to the local level as it relates to the spirit of Babylon. Those things that work in opposition to the design of God. And the call to come out from Babylon is a call unto something which isn't very popular today, but which is in the Bible and is essential to our Christian life. And we call it biblical separation. Not that you remove your presence from the Babylon which is all around you. But as Jesus prayed for us in John 17, he says, I pray not that they would come out of this world, but that you would keep them from evil. That we, being in the world, might be separated from the world, from its priorities, from its desires, and from its empty promises. John would write in 1 John chapter 2, verses 17, uh, 15 through 17, Love not the world, neither the things which are in, that are in the world. Excuse me. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God will uh, abideth forever. Notice John's distinction here. John does not say that the things of the world that we are to refuse are the material goods of the world. The technologies of the world, the conveniences of the world, that's not what the world is when we say separation from the world. When we are talking about the world and separation from the world, we are talking about those things ideologically, materially, or otherwise that reflect the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Because these are not of the Father, they are of the world. These things are Babel. This is Babylon. They exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. They defy the design of God. They operate against the commands of God. And they lead every man who pursues them into the inevitable consequences unto which Babylon is headed that we read about in Revelation 18. And John says, those things that are in the world will pass away. But if you commit yourself to the things of God of God's design, exemplified in the life and teachings of Jesus and his apostles. Those things abide forever. Now, it's interesting. John gives us three things here that are characteristic of the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And in Paul's teaching, Paul gives us three things that, as John says here, he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Paul gives us in his teachings three things that abide forever in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 
In verse 13, we read this. And now abideth faith, hope, charity. These three. Faith. When what God's word says becomes what you believe and so affects what you do. Hope. A determined reliance upon the promises of God is the very foundation for how you live your life. And charity. The setting aside of yourself in every manner and context to serve those who are around you. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, those pass away with the world. But if you do the will of God, faith, hope, charity, those abide forever. The world lives in the shadow of Babylon. And on that day in Revelation chapter 18, verse, when Revelation 18 verse 4 comes to pass... Babylon will pass away and it will be no more. With all of its lusts of the flesh and lust of the eyes and pride of life, with all of its priorities, with all of its defiance, with all of its ideas, with all of its designs, it's all going away. But the things of the Father will not pass away. And of all these things, Paul gives us an exhortation in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. He says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Paul calls the church here, not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We often speak of that passage in relation to marriage, and that's a good application of that passage, but the content of the passage is not speaking at all about marriage. There's no marriage in that context at all. Paul is speaking in that context of connecting ourselves, our lives, our affections, our intentions to the unrighteousness of this world, to Babylon. Connecting your minds to institutions and ideologies of unrighteousness and then using those unrighteous thinkers as the foundation for how you see the world, whether that's secular science or secular psychology or secular philosophy. None of these things are in and of themselves bad. It's not bad that, that, that unbelievers are thinking and that thinking has led to a lot of the, the things that are around us today. But rest assured, the only virtue that any of those things have is the extent to which they have identified and aligned with God's design. The rest is Babylon. We need to be careful connecting our lives to the institutions and ideologies of unrighteousness. Secular trends, secular media, secular amusements, none of which in them, of themselves are bad per se, but rest assured their only virtue is the degree to which they have aligned with God's design. Outside of that, they are nothing but Belial. And Christian. The question is this, how can the living God dwell in us and walk with us? How can he be our God and we be his people if what we are living in is Babylon? And the prescription is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate and touch not the unclean thing. We have a saying here at Legacy Baptist Church. When the dirty is with the clean, the dirty doesn't get cleaner. The clean gets dirtier. You don't take a clean rag and throw it into a whole pile of dirty rags and then come back and see every single rag clean. It's, that's, not, that's not how that works. To the contrary, if one of our kids has a nice clean rag and he throws it into the dirty rag pile, mom is washing that rag too because now it's dirty. You don't throw a rotten apple into a bushel of good apples and come back to find the rotten apple good. To the contrary, as the idiomatic expression says, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. In biblical terms, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And this is why we needed to take the time to consider Babylon. I didn't take the time to consider Babylon so you can go back and put on your tinfoil hat and start railing against the UN and the EU. That's, that's not why I considered Babylon today. 
The reason why we consider the legacy of Babylon is because Babylon is all around us. It always has been. It isn't new. It isn't surprising. This isn't unique to our time in history. But Babylon does have a way into our lives and into our homes, perhaps an allure to us that is unique, at least in modern Western history. And the question for you and I today is, where has the legacy of Babylon found its way into our lives, into our hearts, into our actions, into our concerns, into the way that we are operating on a daily basis? And again, I mentioned just a few organizations today. I mentioned those, the organizations and the movements, because those are low-hanging fruit. Those are obvious. Those make it nice and easy what we're talking about today. But what about other aspects of Babylon? The doctrine of biblical separation does not demand that Christians always look and act differently than the world that is around us. But it does expect that Christians will always look and act in a distinction to the world that is around us. And there's, there's, do you understand the distinction? We won't always look different, but what we're doing, why we're doing it, how we're going about it will be distinct because that ought to represent what 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Which means if I can't do it to the glory of God, then I'm not doing it. And, that, and so if I'm not doing it, I'll look different. But if there's something that the world is doing that I can do too, I can do it, but in distinction. Because I'm not going to be doing it for my own pleasure, for my own intentions, for my own desires, unto my own ends. But I will be doing it to the glory of God. Everything from what we say to where we go to what we wear to what we would watch and not watch, all of those things, what we, how, who we interact with, all of those things, it may not necessarily always be different than the world around us, but it will always be distinct if we are doing it to the glory of God. So that the standard for my life is not a set of rules that everyone agrees upon in the church. Under the blessed doctrine of Christian liberty, not only isn't there a set standard set of rules in that way, but that set of rules simply can't exist. But we do operate under a set of principles upon which every single believer is taught in the scriptures to agree. That everything that commands the attention of my day is something which is possible to do to the glory of God. So that if God cannot be glorified in what I say or where I go or what I do, then I reject it on principle. Because it's not to the glory of God. And if it's not glorifying God, then it's glorifying something other than God. And it bears the legacy of Babylon. And then for those things that can be done unto the glory of God, I make sure that my heart and my life are determined to do them unto that end. That we might not be caught up in that legacy of Babylon, but rather be separated from it. In the words of Revelation 18, verse 4, that we would come out of her, that we receive not of her plagues. But that isn't the only reason why we're called out of the spirit of Babylon. The danger of consequences for sin is a very real motivation and one which is prominent in the word of God. But do you know that the essence of motivation in the Christian life is not actually rooted in the consequences of sin? Fundamentally, it is not the fear of punishment that motivates us unto separation from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6? The motivation that Paul gives here in 1 Corinthians 6 for us to separate from the world, separate from Babylon, is not negative. It's not God's wrath against sin, though, of course, that wrath is real. Judgment is real. But as Paul would say in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, the goodness of God is what leads us to repentance. Christ does not stand behind us with a stick, warning us that any deviation from his path is going to be met with swift anger and merciless punishment. That is not the God we serve. That anger and that punishment was poured out on Jesus for our sins. Jesus took that on the cross. He bore our wrath. He took the shame. Christ stands in front of us with his arms open. And he says this. 
I want to dwell with you. I want to walk with you. I want to be your God, and I want you to be my people. But this relationship can only exist in righteousness. God has given us the power through his spirit to reject a love for the world and the things therein. Not with the idea that in order to follow God, we must set aside everything good in this life. Well, I guess I have to lose out on all the fun stuff in life if I'm going to follow God because God says I can't go there. No, much to the contrary. Jesus says to set aside those things which are weak and beggarly, things which cannot satisfy, things which are empty promises, things which will promise you the world but will deliver you nothing, which, like cotton candy, tastes good for just a moment on the tongue but dissolves in that moment and is gone and you don't even taste it anymore and you're not satisfied either. And Jesus says instead of choosing those things which will pass away with this world, which will surely burn up, choose the things that will abide forever because these are better things. It is not a negative motivation. It is not give up all the fun in your life in order to follow me. It is choose the better life. Choose the better way. Follow me unto a better existence. Instead of choosing a life rooted in these empty promises that will produce Nothing. They promise so much and they give so little. He says, choose a life rooted in faith, hope, and charity. And in doing so, he says, I will dwell with you and I will walk in you and I will be your God and you will be my people. Christian, that is not a downgrade. That's an upgrade. This is everything the world promises you but cannot deliver. This is the very fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. A life of obedience and separation is not a life marked by loss, by, by, by giving up. It is a life of gain. For as Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world but lose his own soul? Many Christians are mistaken that a life of distinction, not a life of difference, sometimes it'll look different. In our day, it's getting more and more different. Hasn't always been that way, though. But this life of distinction, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Many Christians have become mistaken to believe that this life of distinction is bondage, that biblical separation is bondage, but it's nothing like bondage. It asks you to stay behind the walls of God's character. There are walls that God has erected of his moral will, and the walls of God's moral will are erected there to keep out unrighteousness. Those walls, however, are protective, not restrictive. There's two reasons to build a wall. The first is to keep stuff in. The second is to keep stuff out. On the authority of the word of God, the walls that God has built of his moral will are to keep stuff out, not to keep stuff in. And what I mean by that is this. You can walk outside of the protection of God's moral will anytime you choose. God's not stopping you. There's no turned in barbed wire on the walls of God's moral will. But when you're outside those walls, you're in danger. You're in a place where there's wickedness, where there's evil, where there's deceit, where there's lies. There's shame. There's guilt. There's fear. That's what's on the outside of those walls. So God says, I've built some walls, and the walls are the the, the boundaries of my moral will, boundaries of my moral character. And he says, within these walls, there is not just freedom, but within these walls, there's absolute freedom. Because anything that is within the, the walls of God's moral boundaries, the walls of God's moral character, is entirely free to do And you're free to do it without any fear, guilt, or shame. As long as the thing I desire to do, I can do to the glory of God, then there is no shame, there is no guilt, there is no fear in it. It's protection, not restriction. It's the place of joy, it's the place of rest. God has withheld from us nothing vital to the human experience. 
God has only asked us to live it within the bounds of his moral character so that I can live in the fullness of all that God has designed for me and live this life in consistent relationship with my God without any contradiction and any confusion. I can have them both in peace and joy as I live in faith, hope, charity, the things which abide forever. So may we today, and this was the point, may we today come out of Babylon Come out of her legacy and be separate. Touch not the unclean thing. Come out from among her. Babylon is as alive today as it ever has been. There's there's coming a day when it will be destroyed today. Not that day. But we can separate it from today. from, From it today. For the glory of God and truly as well for our best good. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.